joining us for the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast, where we discuss timely topics in trade, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain issues. Thank you for joining us today to the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast. My name is Olga Torres, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're joined by Lieutenant General Stephen Lanza, who retired from the U.S. Army in April 2017 as the Commanding General of America's First Corps and Senior Mission Commander for Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington State. During his most recent command, Lieutenant General Lanza led projects to ensure over 53,000 troops remain globally responsive and regionally aligned. Under his leadership, First Corps implemented the Department of Defense's initiative to rebalance forces to the Pacific by deploying headquarters to Australia, Japan, and Korea, and incorporating American forces in Alaska, Hawaii, and Japan, while still remaining ready to respond to forces command global requirements. He has extensive command experience, including with the 7th Infantry Division at JBL, 5th Brigade Combat Team, 1st Cavalry Division, Fort Hood, Texas, Operation Iraqi Freedom Iraq, and the 1st Battalion, 5th Field Artillery, 1st Infantry Division, Fort Riley, Kansas. His operational deployment experience includes operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm Saudi Arabia, Operation Joint Guard Bosnia-Herzegovina, Operation Iraqi Freedom Iraq, and Operation New Dawn Iraq. He also holds a master's degree from Central Michigan University and the National War College, and he has served as a National Security Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. What an impressive bio. I'm reading it and I am getting nervous just, you know, reading all these impressive um, things that you've done. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are our first military uh, discussion that we've had in the podcast. We typically have obviously on the civil side, and we deal a lot with national security, export controls, economic sanctions, and we're very excited to be able to have a discussion on, on the state of affairs of the U.S. military based on your experience and some of the new geopolitical challenges that we're having, specifically, obviously, Russia, but uh, as well as China. In China, we're hearing a lot um, uh, a lot of questions from, from our audience and from our clients, what happens if such and such, right, you know, right. thing happens. So it's going to be very interesting to getting you to to answer some of those questions that we're getting. But first of all, we would like to thank you. Thank you so much for devoting your life to protecting our way of life. Um, we're very honored to have you in our podcast. Well, thank you very much. And it's a privilege to be part of this, Olga. So thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. And I hope I bring a perspective perhaps that they haven't heard or something that they'll find interesting about future global affairs and where we are today as a nation. I'm sure that will be the case. So I always like to start the podcast just to, you know, break the ice a little bit. Just tell us a little bit of, of your personal background. Where are you from? Why did you decide to join the military? And, and what led you to, to where you are? Well, great. And, and again, thanks for the opportunity. So I'm from New York City originally, uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, grew up in Brooklyn and Staten Island. Uh, the first person in my family to go to college. My dad was very proud of the fact that his son could go to college. So. Uh, pretty emotional. My dad just passed a while back. So it's just, but anyway, right. I decided uh, I had a variety of colleges and I wanted to play sports and I wanted to find a good academic institution. Uh, so I applied to a variety of colleges and 
you know, as happenstance, West Point came through and my dad said, you know, do you really want to go there? And I looked at the brochure and it looked very exciting. It looked just like an exciting place to be, but I didn't know I was going to be a military officer as a career. I thought I would go to West Point, get a great education. It was a full scholarship, which was always helpful, and then do my commitment and leave. But once I joined West Point and once I get into the military, I found that I really enjoyed being on that particular team. I love the mission. I love the responsibility. I love the fact that I was part of something bigger than myself. It was about what we did with the team and, and the collaboration we had and the trust we had in each other. And I just gravitated towards that. So after my five-year commitment, I decided to continue. And then once I had command in the military, I think, Olga, that was the hook. Uh, my first <laughs> command as a captain, I think that was the hook that kept me in because I just loved being around the soldiers and I loved the missions that we were doing. That's very interesting. So a little bit of, um, not to digress too much, but when I first came to the U.S., I came in as an international student. Um, and when I was attending college, uh, one of my, technically, the, he's a very close friend of our family, and I call him an uncle, and he was a Marine. And I try to, like, what if I joined the Marines? And back then, I don't know now, they had, they didn't count your college degree if, you're, if you were not a U.S. citizen. So I was like, eh. I don't know if I want to do that, but I actually do have questions about that later because I've sure. been reading about recruitment for the military yeah. is down and whether maybe things will change in the future, depending on how much, you know, how many yeah. people we need. Um, I'm happy to talk about that because it's such a big issue in the military to meet our recruiting goals and some of the initiatives that the chief of staff of the army has done uh, to kind of work through that. Hmm, interesting. Um, so I guess we can get started. To just again, our audience is not going to be your typical military that they, they may not have as much knowledge about our military. So tell us about the U.S. military, our size, our budget organization. How, how does it work? How is it structured? And I actually had an interesting discussion as I was preparing for the podcast with one of my associates, um, at least with respect to China. We were talking about how much we need the Navy. Um, and, and so we were discussing Actually, how would it work? Like, how how does the army go in, and how? Because we have, you know, air force, army, marines, and so like understanding some of that structure that will be that will be great for our listeners. Well, let's talk a little bit about the U.S. military, and and you know, the army is a large institution. The military is a large institution. The army is a million man strong, men and women strong. That counts the active component, the reserve component, and the national guard. We are stationed globally all over the world in 157 countries. We have military people, American soldiers in 157 countries. What is great about our military is the ability to do joint and combined operations, to work together. You brought up the Navy, but working together with the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Army is very significant. I think for your listeners, if you see the challenges that Russia has had right now doing joint operations, we are extremely competent in doing that. We're also able to project combat power very easily. We have a large ability to globally lift our soldiers. We have an incredible Air Force and Navy. So the ability to project combat power is extremely important. I think one of our other great capabilities is logistics and sustainment. The ability to sustain and take care of our combat forces wherever they are. I'll talk a little bit about the budget later on, but it is a fairly large budget. But again, this budget is about three rheostats. So the military has a large budget, $860 billion, about $186 billion for the Army. But there's three rheostats. The first one is about personnel, and that's pay, that's medical, that's retirement. The second one is about readiness. And the third one is about modernization. So we have to take care of all those three rheostats. And a little bit in the uh, future, I'll talk about why we've had some challenges with modernization based on Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think the one biggest thing about the military is the trust that the nation has in us as an institution. We are a professional military. 
We're an all-volunteer force. And I think the nation, if you look at our statistics, we have our challenges like any other large organization. But there's a certain amount of trust the nation has in us as an institution, especially as a profession, as a values-based organization. Some of our other capabilities we have for the government is we're able to work with large, complex problems. If you look at some of the geostrategic problems the United States has, the military has been able to lead a lot of those efforts interagency-wise for the U.S. government. And then we have a tremendous capacity with intelligence, as you probably know. So the ability to collect intelligence, the ability to do reconnaissance is something that uh, we value very much. And of course, the advanced technologies that we have, I think we do a tremendous job developing advanced technologies for the government and for the country. I'll give you one very good example. Uh, as you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had a lot of wounded soldiers, unfortunately, due to combat. But a lot of the gains that America has seen in medical capabilities have come from combat operations. A lot of things you see with prosthesis, a lot of things you see with clotting of blood, a lot of things you see with medical procedures have come because of the innovations that we've done in those particular situations. And I think one of the great things about the military is that we continue to innovate with our technologies, and then those technologies are passed out through the rest of America. Uh, so again, I'm just very proud of the military, but more importantly, I'm proud of how we work together as a cohesive team. And I think that adds a lot of value to the government. Very interesting. And and I, I think you gave us a big overview and, and you also sort of touched on what sets us apart from other militaries. But zooming in, and I know, you know, a lot of this will be China. How do you think we compare against the Chinese military? And, and yeah. I, I believe that we have the strongest military, but I, I've been hearing a lot of in, in the news and, and just sure. reading about it that they have invested so much in their military and, and some of the recent exercises that we've been conducting, whether um, uh, nonprofits and sometimes I think DOD simulations, if there was some, um, if there was a war against China, I was surprised to hear that it wasn't a convincing win on our side. Um, so I, I was wondering why that is. Let me go back a little bit. I think as your listeners probably know, for the last two decades, we've been involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have been focused on what was called counterinsurgency operations yeah. in those two countries. Prior to that, the military was scaled for uh, Russia. We were scaled against doing things for deterrence. We were scaled for the Cold War and that kind of mission. But in the last two decades, we've really changed our operations for counterinsurgency. And I, to be frank with you, the Chinese have learned from that. They have watched us over the last two decades. They have changed the way they fight. They have changed the way they organize. They have trained, changed the way they operate as a military. Let me give you some examples. Uh, the Chinese military is doing more with joint operations. I just mentioned that earlier about how they work together and break down the stovepipes within their military. They have professionalized their force. President Xi has looked and tried to root out corruption in the military to make them more professional. They have established what's called theater commands, which look very close to our combatant commands. As you know, the U.S. military has combatant commands that are geographically and globally aligned throughout the world. China has continued to do that. The Chinese are also looking to do expansion work. They now have bases in Djibouti. They have deployed to Syria. They have established the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. They have expanded into some of the barriers and reefs in the South China Sea and have operationalized and militarized those bases. They have increased their advanced technologies with hypersonic weapons. They have looked I at- I heard that they were more advanced than us with respect to hypersonic- in some, areas, in some areas they are. And again, I'll cut to the chase here. We are in a race to transform. The U.S. military is in a race to transform our capabilities right now in some areas to make sure that we have the deterrence capability for China. But I will be frank with you. We don't want to have a war against China. 
what we want to do is we want to win in competition. Uh, so the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, now has published what's called the Joint Concept on Competition, which is a whole of government approach leveraging the military, our political entities, our economic entities, and other interagencies so that we can compete against China and win without having to go to a global scale of war. And I'll be frank with you, if we ever get to that global scale of war, it would not just be about Taiwan. It would spill into other areas. You still have challenges with North Korea. You still have regional threats in Iran. You still have challenges with violent extremist organizations. So there's much more of a threat out there to the nation than just China. But it is very consistent that I think the government does not want to have a full-scale war, but this winning in competition is significant. In order to do that, you asked about the U.S. Army. We have to be present. We have to be forward of the international dateline. So the Navy and the Air Force can do that, but having Army presence in different areas will do that. A General Flynn, the USERPAC commander, United States Pacific Command, has stood up what's called multi-domain task forces with unique capabilities that are designed to be in that first island chain in the Pacific to enhance with deterrence. Uh, what the Chinese have done brilliantly in the last two decades is they have established what's called anti-access area denial capabilities. You brought up a couple of them, hypersonic weapons, integrated air and missile defense is another. But this is designed to keep the United States military out of areas they do not want us in. Think of the South China Sea. Think of the Straits of Taiwan. And it is very hard to penetrate those anti-access capabilities. So we're developing capabilities to do that with our Navy. We're also developing capabilities where our military, as I said earlier, will be present forward. Some of the capabilities our military has to develop is the Air Force is focused on bombers, the B-21s. Our Navy is focused on new submarines and new capabilities to do that. And our Army now is focused on long-range precision munitions and also integrated air and defense capability that can be positioned in the Pacific. I heard and read that our submarines are um, at least a generation more advanced than the, the, the Chinese um, equivalent submarines. So that made me feel a little better. But going back to what you said, which it's reassuring to hear that, that no one wants to go to 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 go to war with China. Um, at the same time, we're hearing at least you know the public, uh, non-military, we're hearing a lot about whether the Chinese would invade Taiwan and what would yeah. be the U.S. response. And I, it's sort of been made clear by the administration that we would intervene and our military would intervene and, and defend mm -hmm. um, Taiwan. Are, are we ready for that? Let me let me couch this about Taiwan, because I think this is a very important point. Uh, I happened to be in China a few years ago. I had the opportunity to go into their bunker where their equivalent of our chairman sits, their chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. One of the things he told us is that everything is negotiable except Taiwan. One of the things he talked about is that they want Taiwan. Taiwan to them is part of China, just as Hong Kong was. So I think that will be a challenge for us in the future. And I, I, I've been in Taiwan as well, and I would argue that they're under attack every day. It may not be with kinetic weapons, but if you look at cyber, if you look at some of the challenges that Taiwan faces, the Chinese are working very hard every day to disrupt uh, Taiwan. Now, as be that as it may, because of what's happened now in the last couple of years with China, we have gone to great efforts now to try to reinforce Taiwan. And there's a strategy called the porcupine strategy for Taiwan to make them so hard to penetrate that it would be very hard for the Chinese and would be not cost effective for them to do that. So there's a lot of weapons now that are being given to the China, when I say given to Taiwan, but sold to Taiwan. We now have military engagements with Taiwan, which we have not had in the past, but there's a completely different perspective now on how to make Taiwan more of a porcupine for the Chinese 
so that it's extremely hard. But the biggest challenge, Olga, is one, the tyranny of distance. You know, Taiwan from China is 100 miles. If you think about Hawaii, yes, Hawaii is in the Pacific, but it's 5,100 miles from Taiwan. Right. So think about the advantage you have in terms of distance and the tyranny of terrain and distance as it pertains to our ability to engage. And that's why we need to be positioned forward of the international date line to have that presence there in the theater. So what I'm hearing is at some point, my understanding is right now our militaries are not talking, um, the, the U.S. military and the Chinese military. Um, but at some point when you did have access to, to military um, there, Taiwan is out of the question. At some point, there could potentially be an invasion of Taiwan. And at that point, it becomes what is our reaction to that invasion? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think politically we'll have to determine how much we want to react. But I think right now we want the Taiwanese to react accordingly. I will tell you also that other countries now are involved in this. If you look at Australia. Right. That was my next you, question. Yeah, please, so we're, we're, we're working with Australia. We're working with our allies. We're working with India. I mean, this is not about just the U.S. going alone. It has never been about the U.S. going alone. There is nothing we can accomplish, I think, and this is Steve Lanza's perspective, without partners and allies. So going alone is not the right answer. We need partners and allies. And I think the Chinese are watching very closely what happens in the Ukraine. They're watching very closely on our treaty. How do we keep NATO together? The reaction of our partners and allies. How do we continue to help Ukraine? Because that's going to have an impact on Taiwan. So we have conducted a lot of partnerships and a lot of training, and we have a lot of treaties now in the Pacific. We're going to base forces in the Philippines. This is something new. Well, it's not new. We're coming back to the future. But we're going to put forces back in the Philippines. We are reinforcing Guam. We are reinforcing our training with Australia. The Australian Navy is looking at their capabilities as well to project combat power. The Japanese have relooked at their constitution on conducting more offensive operations instead of just force protection and self-defense, which is yeah. what their constitution has had them to do. So these things are very significant in how we look at Asia and how we look at the theater. Uh, India has their own problems with the Chinese, as you know, on their border in the north. So India can be a partner and ally, but India is tough because they also have a unique relationship with Russia. I was just going to say, so India, when when I watch what India is doing, it's sort of very lukewarm with respect to Russia. I feel like they're playing double agent there. Um, but I always, just from a geopolitical, not as much from a military standpoint, I, I, I kept thinking that India is not necessarily going to side with China just historically uh, with the, the relationship between the countries. So so I'm glad that, you, that you're saying the same thing. And we're doing a lot with India. We have a lot more engagements, a lot more exercises. I know when I was in command, we actually did operations in India and had the Indians come here to do operations with us. So there's a lot more of that. And uh, General Flynn is taking on a greater role in extending operations into India and leveraging our resources with India as a partner. Yeah, and I saw recently that we're calling, you know, the Indo-Pacific region, right? And I think yeah. that's us. Is that is that us trying to? Bring yes, it in takes. It? It's not just the Pacific Ocean; it's that Indian Ocean as well. You know, we used to just say we were the Pacific Command, but if you think about the Pacific, it goes into India as well, into South Asia, and that's. Part and, of and, I, and I'm assuming we're doing that to, hey, India, you're, you know, we we need you. You're part of the solution. Yes. <laughs> I hope. Um, and, and I'm, so you, you mentioned something about China is watching what the U.S. is doing. Um, I'm assuming they're doing something similar where they're trying to reach out to even the same the same countries um, and, and trying to figure out where they would side. Right. Yeah. 
I, I think you're referring to the Belt and Road Initiative. So China yes. has gone to great detail and great lengths to do this Belt and Road Initiative, which, by the way, giving money to nations and helping them with technology and helping them with their infrastructure also allows them to bring in their military. And uh, I'll share a story with your listeners. Uh, when I was in Iraq, we got a call to go down to Basra. If you've been in Iraq, Basra is one of the major areas in Iraq. I have not been getting... to Iraq. <laughs> well, hopefully one day you'll go. But uh, Baghdad's an amazing city. But in Basra, there's a lot of oil. In fact, the oil is so rich there that it's basically you can skim it off the top of the ground. So the Chinese went there while we were there to drill for oil. And we got a phone call from the embassy, from the ambassador to say the Chinese were having issues with the Iraqis. So we, we took our team. We went down to Basra to meet with the Chinese. And the Chinese had set up this very elaborate camp, the state of the art camp. And we talked to the Chinese and we talked to the Iraqis. And what we found out is that while the Chinese were there, they didn't empower and hire any of the Iraqis. It was strictly a Chinese operation and they kept the Iraqis out. And if you've been in the Middle East, you have to include them in the operation. You have to share the resources, you have to hire them, you have to bring them into the discussion. And once the Chinese didn't do that, the Iraqis pushed back in the only way they knew how back then, which was IEDs and attacking oh, wow. the Chinese. And the Chinese asked for our protection, which I thought was very interesting to protect us from the Iraqis because they said, hey, we're not here to fight. We're just here for the oil. But they forgot that you have to account for the people that live in that area. So quickly they left and they, they went back uh, back to China because they could not operate in that kind of environment. But I think it's important for the listeners to know, and you're much more cognizant of the Belt and Road Initiative than I am, but it comes with a price. The, the money that China gives to countries comes with a price and it comes with a payment down the road that some countries find hard to do, whether it be Malaysia, whether it be Kenya and other countries where the Belt and Road Initiative has taken part. Yeah, and I don't want to jump around too much, but it's so interesting to see China sort of brokering deals as a very recently, right, between countries and specifically Middle East and, for example, Latin America, watching them, um, you know, they're so involved in all of Latin America. I yes. think maybe with the exception of Mexico, and maybe that is changing as we speak. Um, and, and sort of watching how much more involved they have been in those regions in the U.S. And I wonder what the impact, I mean, again, we're moving regions now, we're in Latin America, but Latin America being so close to us, right? To our, to our, it's basically our backyard. How will that impact our military, right? Because we're used to fighting wars from yeah. far away. I think you bring up a significant issue. You know, we're broken up into combatant commands that are globally aligned. We have what's called Southern Command that's in Miami that is responsible for South America and Latin America. Normally, that command is resourced the least. Right now, the command that is resourced the most is Indo-PACOM, which is the Pacific Command. Central Command, which has the Middle East, is resourced. The European Command, which has all of Europe, is resourced. So it, it's tough for Southern Command because they don't have all the resources of the other countries. And, and I would be frank to say that the Chinese have made great gains in South America. I think it's important, though, for the military and for the government to have strategic messaging that we are going to be involved with these nations and to find ways to leverage our capability and our capacity to show that we're in support of these nations. And this is about competing with China. This is about winning in competition. We have to compete with them in areas that we're not in. We have to show countries that a democratically elected government, that a government is powerful and a country as great as the United States can help other nations. 
not just in combat operations and not just for security, but in other areas, whether it be economic, whether it be diplomatic, whether it be informational, and that we can add value. So I think our strategic communications, I think our engagement, and I think our working on deterrence with through competition is going to be extremely important in South America because it does have a detrimental effect on security on the United States. Yeah, I mean, just, just location alone being so close. Um, you mentioned something about, you know, democratic values and, and democracies. Um, I wonder, you know, at least with respect to China, I mean, even Russia, mm -hmm. it, not being democracies, does that actually give them an advantage from a military standpoint because they can get things done quick, you know, in a, in a faster I mean, I'm, fashion? I'm not part of the Chinese military, but I know they have a budget of about $226 billion. It's increased over 7% since last year. It's not as much as ours, but I don't think they have some of the challenges politically, but they have other challenges. I mean, President Xi has internal challenges, and I think some of his Achilles heel is internal to the country and how he, uh, the threat of internal issues within his population. So I think that's an internal challenge that President Xi has to deal with. Do you mean but, uh, the uh, the fact that they're not having babies? <laughs> I or but, but there are domestic issues he has in the country with his own population, with his own internal struggles, his own domestic economy. He has to be cognizant of that, I think. And I think anything he does outside the country, if it has reciprocal effects inside the country, I think that's something he has to be wary of. Okay, yeah, because I've been watching, economically speaking, demographics is going to be a big issue with them, right? With their one-child policy, eventually that's catching up. Um, but I, I, I was wondering if there was something closer, just not necessarily, I think the one child policies and the demographic problem, I think it's gonna be in the next decade, but something right now, whether that would swing the balance between them deciding to get into a, a, a direct confrontation with the US. I think um, a couple of things, advanced technologies, we have to close the gap. We are working hard to transform. We are working hard to regenerate our defense industrial base to produce capability faster than we have had in the past. We're looking to generate and project combat power into the theater faster. I've talked about the joint concept for competition. So I think those things right now are very important. And, and there is a race on with us to get our capabilities and it's going to cost money. Chairman Milley was on TV the other day talking about an increase to the budget. And he said, if we're going to have this, we have to talk about an increase to the budget. Now, as I talked earlier, our budget for military operations is not just about buying weapons. It's about sustaining our readiness and it's about taking care of our people. That has a large amount to our budget. I'd also tell your listeners that over 50% of the budget is about people. So when you look at the defense budget writ large, a lot of it, almost 50% is taking care of personnel, whether that be medical issues, whether it be pay, whether it be retirement, whether it be taking care of facilities, that has a large, a large aspect of our budget, which again, I'm back to the three RIA stats that I think your listeners, once they know about those, will realize that not everything is about buying weapons with our budget. Therefore, when increases are asked for, it probably is going to go towards modernization. And in fact, in the last 20 years, we have not done a good job in modernization. We have been focused on counterinsurgency. We've been focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're playing a little bit of catch up in some areas to modernize our military. Does modernization have any role in, in becoming, you know, I know that budget increases um, are expected, but in, in becoming more competitive in terms of budget and being able to reduce budget rather than continue to increase, or is that never going to happen? I think we have. I think we've done, I think I, I can speak, I can't speak for the Army, but I can tell you what the Army has done in night court 
under Secretary Esper and, and other secretaries to actually try to reduce where the Army is actually spending their money to optimize the resources they've been given. So they've gone into what was called night court. They cut a lot of their legacy programs, a lot of their programs that were not going to move forward, that were not going to be modernized. And they leveraged the money that they got from Congress to go into modernized programs. The Army stood up Army Futures Command to look at the future, to look at future capabilities. Under the Army right now, they've relooked their modernization strategy to optimize the dollars they've been given. So I think from the Army perspective, they've done a good job in mitigating the le legacy programs and then optimizing those modernization resources. I think standing up Army Futures Command was a good sign because it looks at where the Army's going in the future and how the Army is going to project their capabilities and capacities all the way out to 2040. And that brings me to, to another question. Um, what, what are DOD's right now procurement priorities, in your opinion? Um, or, or, for example, if we sure. have listeners that are government contractors or startups um, in the defense sector, like what are the main areas that... I think a couple focus? of things. I think DOD is looking for disruptive technologies. So if we have technologies that are disruptive, that will be very important. I've also what would be an example of a disruptive technology? I think, I think anything that has to do with electronic warfare. I think anything that has to do counter space. I think anything that has to do with disrupting a data flow and how data moves, I think is disruptive. I think anything in the cyber world can be disruptive. Uh, my understanding, going back to China, if there was any kind of conflict with China, which it's already happening, I suppose, but if it was a direct direct conflict, um, cyber attacks would be more frequent um, on, on US soil. So what are your thoughts on that and, and how do we... You know, my, my personal view is I think cyber attacks are going on as we speak. Regardless, yeah. I, I think regardless. I think that is something that is, you know, that perhaps your listeners don't see or perhaps they've been exposed to in, in different industries. But I think the United States is under cyber attacks. I, I And I think our cyber command, you know, we have a command. We have a combatant command called Cybercom at Fort Meade, Maryland, that, that is responsible for this. And I think they're looking at not just defensive capabilities, but also offensive capabilities as well. Again, once again, to ensure we can deter and to ensure we can protect our national assets. I think when you ask me about DOD, you know, we're looking at what we can do to win in what's called large scale combat operations. So DOD right now has looked at joint all domain command and control. How do we bring our weapon systems together? How do we communicate with different weapon systems across the services? What's our ability to move data from one weapon system to another? I think that's going to be very important. And, that's, and that acronym is Joint All Domain Command and Control. The Army has now embraced a doctrine of called multi-domain operations, where they're now looking not just at operations on land and air, but what it takes to operate in space and cyber and how to do that collectively, holistically, with all those domains being integrated. I think some of the other things that DOD is looking at is how to optimize what's called the kill chain, you know, from a sensor to an effector to a shooter. How do you do that? And how do you do that in an agnostic way where you a sensor, a satellite, or an intelligence capability can translate data and the weapon system that's available can fire at the enemy to mitigate latency and decision making? I think that's very important and something they're looking at. Again, I talked about the other services, what they're doing, of course, Air Force with bombers, Navy with submarines, the Marines with amphibious ships. The Army's two major priorities are long range precision fires, long range weapons that can fire, and then an integrated air and missile defense system. I think one of the biggest threats we have to counter is drones. I think when you think of drones right now, it's not just aerial drones, but the Chinese have what's called naval drones as well, unmanned vessels that can operate in the ocean. 
unmanned mm. vehicles that can operate in the air. How do you counter those? So this counter UAS or counter unmanned aerial systems is extremely important. And that's something I think we're very much focused on, on how to not only defeat it, but what we can do with our own capabilities. And again, as you brought up earlier, hypersonic weapons is something that we're working on, something that we're testing. And I know industry right now is looking for solutions on how we can close the gap on hypersonic weapons with China. I think your readers know that China has tested a lot more hypersonic weapons than we have, but we're closing that gap. And I think the last area is one of lasers. What are we doing with high energy lasers? What are we doing with microwave weapons? Are there things we can do with microwave weapons and lasers to defeat those unmanned aerial systems? So I think those are some areas, Olga, that are very important as we move forward. What's going, when you mentioned drones, you, th there was something in the news this week about an attack um, on the US um, and it was using uh, an Iranian drone. In which, Syria, it just happened in Syria. And uh, and I believe there was a contractor that, that died. Yes, unfortunately uh, in Syria, yeah. Yeah. Um, so so I, and I, I didn't, I wasn't fully aware that, that Iran had drones. Um, in terms of, you know, we're basically creating a new world order, right, as we speak. I mean, I, I, we're seeing sites, you know, China, Iran, Russia, and, and us, the West. Um, what's going on? Like, how do, not just looking at China and their capabilities, I mean, again, like seeing something like coming from Iran, what are other areas of, of um where the military, especially if there was some kind of conflict with China, where we're going to have to be worried about, like you mentioned at the beginning, well, we still have the Middle East and we still have uh, to, to, you know, pay attention to other areas in the world. Sure. What are your thoughts on that and, and, and this new, you know, I guess, I'm not sure so, you know, people I'm not taking sure. sides, right, on, yeah. on with different countries? Yeah, and, and I think that's why Ukraine, to be honest, is so important. I think what happens in Ukraine, you know, if Russia is, is brought to bear on what happens in the Ukraine, and again, time is not on the Ukrainian side, I think, as we all know, but I think that's going to have an impact on other countries. But let me go back to your question. We still have the challenge of North Korea with nuclear weapons. North Korea is a, is a threat that is not going away, and the South Koreans know that. We still have the regional challenges we have, such as what you just saw in Iran and the Middle East. We have violent extremist organizations. We have narco issues that occur south of our border. And I think over time, you're gonna see challenges that add to security issues with immigration, not just in the US, but these mass migrations of populations and the security issues that that entails. So I think over time here, these treaties that we have, you know, the US is part of 11 treaties. One of our biggest treaties obviously is NATO, but having this working together with partners and allies is going to be extremely important and keeping these organizations together is important. Let me give you one example. Finland and Sweden want to join NATO, which I think is tremendous, which I think Putin did not account for. But if Turkey continues to push back on Sweden, that has a chance to undermine our relationship as NATO. So I guess working together and partnering together and not finding cracks in our ability to work with partners and allies is going to be extremely important. But there are other threats in the world besides China. And again, China is involved in a lot of these other areas. It is not just about the South China Sea. It's not just about Taiwan. Their ability to project combat power using the Belt and Road Initiative, using their military capabilities right now has increased significantly in the last 20 years. 
That's why this discussion on, on back to winning in competition is so important. And we have to be there with the Chinese and we have to show people that we can compete in other areas besides just military with other nations. Something that is really interesting to me, and, and again, we, you know, since I started my career, we've had a lot of defense controls on China, um, but it wasn't really a full, you know, yeah. a, a full war or trade war until Trump, until the yeah. Trump administration, right? And we see uh, basically decades of let's yeah. trade with China and China is not at all a, a threat for the U.S., and, and we saw that with both yeah. President Bush, President Obama. So I guess my question point. is, I mean, my question is, you know, we're just here, regular oh. citizens, minding our business, our day to day. Yeah. Um, how, how can the administrations miss that? And, and, and why did the Trump administration all of a sudden sort of turn that on? I think, right? I think sometimes people think in our nation we're either at peace or we're at war. But there's this gray area that sometimes we don't account for because we're not at peace and we're not at war. And I think sometimes as a nation, we look through our U.S. lens and we want people to be like we are. And we view the fact that if we bring enough business into China, if we accommodate them in a certain way, if we do certain things, then they'll be just like us. And under President Xi, they have not. I mean, he has his strategy for the future. And China does have a strategy. China does want to be a global power. They want to exceed the United States, not just economically, but also militarily. And I, I'm not going to talk about specific administrations, but I think over time, the rebalance we had to the Pacific under President Obama was a great initiative, but it wasn't embraced holistically by the government. And I think now that we've seen what China is doing, we've seen the threat that China uh, you know, puts on the table here, we've taken a different approach to it. And it's going to take some challenges in the United States with our businesses. Do we want to do business with China to the way we've been doing business in the past? And what risk is the U.S. willing to accept? You know, what business risk are we willing to accept? What economic risk are we willing to accept that we have not had to do in the past because of the lucrative markets in China? So again, I don't think you can have it both ways. And I think until the Chinese change some of their ways, I think some of the positions we've taken in, in the past is going to have to get through to President Xi because they do understand one thing. They do understand power. They do understand that when you project power, either economically, either diplomatically or militarily, and these are what autocratic governments do understand, unfortunately, that you have to be able to project power and you have to show that you have the capability to deter. And if you don't have the capability to deter, then you don't have deterrence. So you have to be able to show that in order to effectively deter. Yeah, I, I have a couple of, of questions Please. there, comments. Um, so something really interesting that happened in our world, in the trade world, uh, was after the Section 301 tariff. So the U.S. had you know, multiple decades of trading with, with China, we imposed Section 301 tariffs, which basically targeted a lot of Chinese product and merchandise with very high tariffs, right? So we have seen, it started with the Trump administration, continues with the Biden administration. Um, and we are seeing now from a, just a business perspective, you mentioned that briefly, we are seeing sort of a decoupling, um, at least in certain areas where people are truly worried that, okay, it wasn't just the Trump administration, it's 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 maybe here to stay and it's affecting our business, it's cutting on our margin. And also I think so much coverage regarding the potential for 
you know, a Taiwan invasion and the posture of the U.S. and whether we would defend, and it looks like we would. Um, and again, it would be, you know, if we look at what we did with Russia, at least in my world, export controls, econ economic sanctions, where it becomes impossible to do business with those in those regions or getting paid and, and the risk is just too high. So obviously China being a much, much larger economy and, and being one of our largest trading partners, because um, it typically goes between Mexico and China, but China being, um, mm -hmm. I would say, in, in, depending on how you measure it, being one of the largest. Um, so it does seem interesting that we are seeing some of that hesitation now, right? Like where before I was used to seeing people, hey, we're going to invest in China and, and there was no hesitation. Obviously, there's a lot more studying done and a lot more, you know, people are preoccupied of like, what if something happens and then we have a geopolitical situation. Um, at the same time, I thought it was so interesting when when the Russians, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, there was this situation where the Russians could trade with China and and the government of China has always been, you know, yeah. sort of not protective of Russia, but definitely sort of assisting Russia. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I, I saw it from a pure private industry in China. We didn't see the same behavior by the Chinese companies. Like we would typically see Chinese companies not wanting to trade with Russian companies uh, because they didn't want to have any potential repercussions by the U.S. government. And I thought it was so interesting, right, because we were seeing something from the Chinese government and sort of this posture of, you know, we're OK with Russia. Um, but the Chinese companies were doing everything they could to make sure that they didn't have any potential exposure if they traded with Russia because they did not want to lose their U.S. base, right. their U.S. customer base. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because you had the government doing one thing and private industry doing one thing. And and to a certain extent, we had it in the U.S. as well. Right. We we had. OK, now we have these tariffs and, you know, this is probably not going to stay. That that's crazy. It's our largest business partner. We're not going to you know, it's just probably this administration. The other one will get rid of them. And, you know, it's still up in the air what's going to happen. It, and it's so interesting to see government action now finally sort of kind of coming down and businesses finally understanding there is a, a real threat. And and so finally, I feel like we're seeing some hesitation to either open new shop there or invest in that region. Um, and we're starting to seeing people looking at, at other supply chains, right? Looking at Philippines, looking at, uh, having said that, I have seen clients that are, are doing studies of, okay, well, if we try to relocate at least some of the manufacturing to a different country, what about Taiwan? And Taiwan is becoming, you know, pretty much radioactive because of the fear of, you know, it could be another Hong Kong situation. Um, so I, from, from a military perspective, do you think if, if there was an invasion, um, and, and I, I don't think I've asked you this before, um, and if I did, well, I, I can ask something else, but okay. if there was an invasion, I, I think we said we would go in. Do you think we're ready today? I I, I'm not sure we'd go in. I said, I talked about the porcupine strategy so that initially Taiwan could defend like, themselves. So, so showing off power right and and, yes. and so uh, deterring yeah. but but if it happened you know if the porcupine strategy falls I, apart yeah i think from what i know about china china's first goal is to win without fighting 
you know, China, the way they've conducted themselves right now, whether it be in business or other areas, they want to win without fighting. They would like to get Taiwan back without having to fire a shot. That 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 would be their. That goal. doesn't do seem like it's plausible. If you put enough pressure on the Taiwanese government, if you have, you know, you know, China has issues in Taiwan, or they have people in Taiwan now that are trying to undermine the government. They're trying to be divisive. They're trying to sow discord inside Taiwan. Maybe you can get the president unelected and put somebody in government right now that's more favorable to China in Taiwan. That would be helpful to China. So mm. all those things obviously are considered. But China would like to win without fighting. I think that's that's the first thing. I think when you talk about Russia, what you're seeing right now is tension, right? We talked about this, the tension of what she wants to do as an autocratic geostrategic leader, vice the tension with his own businesses that run and make the Chinese economy work. And right. if those companies aren't making money and bringing in revenue, what's the impact on the Chinese people domestically? And is that going to cause a problem for him? Because domestic challenges are one of his biggest concerns. So I think Russia will always be a junior partner to China. I don't think China will ever embrace Russia as a total partner. I think they're much smarter than that. But they do want to try to decouple what's going on in the Ukraine from what's going on in Taiwan. They don't want to link the two. So anything they can do to decouple that narrative or that rhetoric that Taiwan is the same as the Ukraine is very different because they propose what they want to do in Taiwan is much different than what Putin wanted to do with the reasons he went into the Ukraine. I remember before the invasion, and I have another question, so I, I wrote it down so I don't forget. Um, I personally never thought it would happen because I was just... I guess naive is 2023 who goes and takes countries like that anymore. Um, but I remember that Putin met, met with, uh, with basically he went to China, he had a, a state visit. Do you think that he received support from, um, from China at that point? And, and, or do you think it's just, you know, a you know coincidence? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that so far China has not provided them kinetic weapons. And I and I think she right now did not realize that this was going to be such a debacle for Putin. That it would I take that long that, and that would that it would take that long. And I think a lot of people underestimated the Ukrainians. I think a lot of people underestimated their resolve. Even though we have not provided weapons as fast, I think our policy to help them has been important. But I don't think we realized just how determined the Ukrainians were to fight for their country. And I think and we were also surprised at just how bad, in some cases, the Russian military was and their inability to do exactly what Putin wanted to do, which was rapidly take over the Ukraine. They, their military had significant failures and challenges, and they've been bolstered now by the Wagner Group, and they've been bolstered now by Xi's coming to visit Russia. But I'm not sure that's going to change the calculus unless we fail to continue to support the Ukraine. I think that is the only thing that will fail. Xi's last visit to Russia didn't he didn't provide more weaponry, right? No, I think, and I, I can't tell you what they're providing because I don't know. I assume they're providing some capability. I don't think they're providing um, offensive weapons or weapon systems. But look at the Iranian drones, though. Those drones right now, some of the drones they're flying and some of the equipment they're flying is coming in from Iran. So there is this partnership with China, Russia, and Iran that is very destabilizing to the world. Some people call it the new axis of evil. You know, you've, yeah, heard, I, I, you've, heard, that, you've heard that term as well. So I, I wanted to, uh, there was something that I was trying to explain to you and, and I was talking about countries taking sides and I almost used that term, but I was like, I don't think, um, you know, it applies. But so, so one of the comments when you were speaking about, you know, the difference between government and um, referring to my previous statements, 
I, I just went and, and came back from Singapore. And I, it was the first time uh, I was in Singapore. I, I was there for business. And I thought it was so interesting because there were so many Chinese expats. Uh, so much movement of money from China to Singapore. And recently I was reading about, um, I believe it was a Chinese businessman, high profile, I want to say billionaire in China, who was trying to move money from China to Singapore, probably due to this situation with, uh, is there going to be more tension with the US and Taiwan, et cetera. And he was arrested and nobody has seen him ever since. Interesting. Wow. Mm -hmm. So well, it it is interesting there in the situation that I I do see from just obviously I'm not a I don't have a military background but I am seeing that um, you know Chinese industry doesn't necessarily want to get into conflict with the U.S. and I hope that that will also serve as some kind of deterrent for any kind of military action. I, I think it will, and I think it's going to cause President Xi problems. I mean, markets in Europe are important to China. NATO nations, their markets are important to China. The U.S. is an important market to China. The, uh, Australia is an important market to China. Vietnam is an important market to China. India, a variety of countries you know, that we partner with militarily do provide significant economic resources to China. I think one thing that's fascinating about your comment that I'll share with your listeners is I happened to be in Vietnam when I was on active duty for a mission, and I was working with the Vietnamese military. You know, we've come full circle now. We're now partnering with the Vietnamese military. And I was talking to my counterpart and he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, we were talking about China. And he said, we have to live with the Chinese. We understand that. We have to work with the Chinese. He said, but he looked me in the eye and he said, but we trust the United States. And I, and I never forgot that comment because it was so important to me that here we are half a world away and we're working with a nation that we were at war with many decades ago. But his comment to me as a general officer in the Vietnamese military is we trust the United States. We don't trust China. We have to work with them, but we trust the U.S. And I thought that was an important piece of information about how other countries value our country. And they value what we bring. They value our, you know, our governance and they value what we're about. I, I just thought it was very significant at the time. And I was just taken aback by it a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, going back to whether you know, hopefully our trade relationship with China and industry in China, not wanting to get into conflict, direct conflict with the U.S. That was the whole point of globalization, right? Like we we always mm -hmm. said, if we globalize, if we have trading relationships, we won't have wars, right? I think that was part of why it was so surprising. I, I guess Russia, I mean, what's, was Russia really part of the global system? Yes, but they don't really have like true industry. I feel like they're more like a natural resource type country. Um, but, you know, I always say like they're like a very large gas station. Uh, but but China, I mean, specifically if if I mean, obviously they don't have a democracy, but I like you said, I wonder if if industry has and globalization works. Now, my what I worry about is that we are making changes in the US from from an export control perspective, economic sanctions perspective, where we are seeing some of that. I don't know if it's full decoupling, but we are seeing hesitation, like I mentioned, like, OK, mm -hmm. let's explore some other areas. Maybe we don't fully open a new facility there. Maybe we move to another area, another country. Um, and, and I wonder whether that alone, I mean, because I have no hesitation, there are certain areas that we don't want to be doing business in China, right? Anything related to defense and sensitive technologies, anything that, but, you know, like our little 
widgets and you know things that are not sensitive that are not technologies that are highly piped emerging technologies or anything like that um but if we start seeing some of that we're gonna get out of it completely i wonder if that tends to bring us into conflict more because we don't have that pushback from chinese industry right like they're not as much they're not as dependent on us um i, I still think as a military person, Olga, I still think we need our military capabilities to deter. I think if we don't, the Chinese will continue to expand beyond the first island chain. And think of the fact that if we don't have freedom of navigation for trade. Think about that if we can't sail where we need to sail. Think about if the Chinese would close the Straits of Malacca. You mentioned Singapore. What if the Straits of Malacca were closed and U.S. shipping could not go through there? What if we couldn't trade where we want to trade? What if the Chinese decide to close the Arctic down? You know, as, as you go through this yeah. global warming and the Arctic starts to have more uh, sea lines of communication open, what if the Chinese and Russians partner and start closing down the Arctic? What if they close down the airspace again, as they did in the Pacific a few years ago, where they stopped commercial travel? That's why military deterrence, I think, is important. And that's why these capabilities that the government is talking about militarily is so important because it has an impact on other areas that are econo economically viable to the United States. But that's why the, the Navy, you mentioned the Navy earlier, that's why they sail through the Straits of Taiwan. That's why they sail in international waters. That's why we put the Navy in the Black Sea in international waters, because we have to be able to operate in international border, international waters. And that includes the South China Sea, where the Chinese have extended themselves beyond the international waters in what's called the nine dash line. That has had an impact not just on the United States, but other countries that operate in that area in the South China Sea. So we have to be able to move and go where we need to go. And that's why the world order is so important. But more importantly, a rules based order is important. And there has to be mm -hmm. rules based order. And China, in my view, has to be accountable to that rules based order. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Okay. And my last question, sure. and it's going to be maybe too simplistic and it's probably going to be very complicated for you to answer it, but just try. <laughs> if we hopefully went, I'm doing my best up to this. <laughs> um, if we went to direct conflict with China tomorrow, mm -hmm. are we in a good position to win or um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think tomorrow, be, if we went to, to war with China tomorrow, if China, if, I, I think it would be, I think it would scale rapidly. I don't think it would stay constrained to, to the Pacific. I think it would be a global war and I think it would bring in our partners and allies. And I don't think how it could be constrained. Do I think we would win? Yes. I think at this time we would win. I think it would be extremely competitive. I think there will be a lot of losses. I think it would be detrimental, obviously, to the world order. But we would, would we win with our capabilities that we have? Yes. Would it scale into a nuclear confrontation? That That is something that you have to consider. And then would the Chinese use nuclear weapons at some point? Would they be compelled at some point if they were going to lose? Would they be compelled to use nuclear weapons? Just as we've had this discussion about Russia using tactical nuclear weapons in the Ukraine. I think anytime you have countries with nuclear weapons, you have to consider that. And then what would North Korea do? So if we went to war with China, would North Korea shoot a nuke into South Korea? Would North Korea shoot a nuke into Japan? And then once you do that, every country is going to want to have nuclear weapons. So again, I, I think it's a very complex question. I don't have a good answer for it. The bottom line is, would we win? Yes. And the cost would be significant. Well, I hope human reason prevails. And, and again, know, as I said earlier, the Chinese want to win without fighting. So that's what they would like to do. Yeah. And, 
one last question that I just Please, thought of. Ahead, Matt, uh, what are your thoughts on the balloon situation? The balloon situation that's yeah the the, the 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 balloon that was supposedly uh, Chinese spying on on U.S. soil and uh, my view is it was spying and my my view is we're under we're, we're being spied on every day and I think we have our capabilities as well. I think it was a surprise to people in the United States to see this. I don't think it was a surprise to the military. I think perhaps what concerned the military is from when they saw it to when they acknowledged it. And I think a lot of it was how they communicated this to the United States people. You mean so the, I, the fact that they hadn't seen it or? or? I think, did they see it in the Aleutian Islands? You know, how long did they see it? How long did they track it for? And when did they inform the American public? I think the challenge you had during that, if, because of the news and because of the way media is today, is that the American public first found out when a farmer from Montana found called somebody in the media and said, I've got this large balloon. And then all of a sudden everybody converged on it. So I think one of the key things with between the military and our nation is the ability to communicate effectively. And I think you have to be in some cases as transparent and collaborative as you can be so that people don't fill in the narrative with things that are going to cause challenges. And I think in some cases, the balloon issue caused some challenges just on how people perceive that we're weak. We, we are not weak. We have extremely good capabilities. But I think the fact that we argued when we shot the balloon down, under what conditions should we have shot it down earlier, all that was being debated in the media when it should have been done, obviously, earlier in advance. And then the nation should have been told exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. The other way I thought about it, at least me personally, um, I started, it was sort of a realization that we have a very capable potential actor, right, um, spying on us. Not that it wouldn't happen before, but it was just so obvious um, that maybe, you know, devil's advocate, it helps with uh, budget for the military, um, you know, things like that, that people are finally realizing it's real. I mean, it, yeah. we have um, a rising power. I think the Chinese have actually brought our two parties together. I think there are very few things that can bring our parties together and our government together. It seems to me the Chinese, though, whether it's the balloon or other things, have really brought our country together in terms of really seeing China as the threat they are. And I think yeah. you're going to please go ahead. The other question I had, um, and I know I told you, I, you know, I was almost done, but this is another one. Um, just based on recent developments, uh, are we? There, there have been rumors, and those were the accusations by the Chinese government, obviously. But um, the, the accusations were, well, the U.S. government is trying to contain us. Um, what, what would you say to that? I, we're not trying to contain them. We're trying to deter them. We, we, want, we want to compete with China. We are not trying to deter China. We are not trying to stop the Chinese from markets and trade. We're not trying. The, we're not trying to stop them from doing anything. And they always use that as a reason. Hey, you're trying to deter us. You're trying to keep us down. We are not. We want to compete with them and we want to win. We want it to be competitive. And that's why this winning in competition is so important. So it's not about deterrence. It's about competition, and it's about China not asserting their capabilities at the detriment to the U.S., especially in international areas where we should compete effectively. Very interesting. And I agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks to our audience. If you have any questions, feel free to email us. We'll be in touch with more on Taurus Talks Trade. Thank you. Olga, thank you very much. This was wonderful.